Hey everyone, it's great to be with you tonight. I wanted just to say thank you for tuning in. We are having a great time here at Grafted, as you can see from some of our videos, and so encouraged by your love for the Lord, your commitment to be here each Friday night. Hope you had a good time last night on Thursday Night Live with Sammy Williams. I love that guy. I've known him since I was 17 years old, and our friendship goes back a long way in the Lord, and uh, what an encouragement he is as a pastor in India. I'm also thankful for this ministry, thankful that there are so many people that are involved helping to make this night and everything we're doing in Radix um, and other aspects of the ministry happen. And so uh, thank you to everybody who's been part of this. Thank you for tuning in. If you don't know me, my name is Sean. I'm the college pastor here at Grafted. And our heartbeat, the reason that we exist, is to help college students know Jesus Christ. And so if you're tuning in for the first time, thanks for coming. That's why we're here. Uh, that's why we exist. If you have questions, if we can help you in any way, please don't hesitate to ask. Uh, and find us online at our uh, website, fbccollegeministry.com. How many of you remember the movie Alice in Wonderland. Get the hand up in the air. Did you know that it wasn't first a Johnny Depp movie in 2010? He's a little spooky sometimes, isn't he? Uh, yikes, Tim Burton, all that. Yeah, anyway. Uh, of course, you know it probably originally as the animated movie from Disney that came out in 1951. But did you know that it wasn't first from Disney? It was actually a novel written by a man named Lewis Carroll in 1865. And its name was Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Its genre as a novel, listen to this, literary nonsense, which I think is hilarious. And it actually defines the book pretty well. It's close to home. Uh, as you remember, this tells the story of a young girl named Alice who falls down a rabbit hole into a subterranean fantasy world, which is populated by peculiar, peculiar anthropomorphic uh, creatures, such as a king and queen of hearts, who are actually made out of a deck of cards. All sorts of crazy things going on in that movie, in that book. We're familiar with the story, and it's no surprise, right? We've all heard it, seen it, maybe even read the book, but it has uh, been translated in 97 languages, it has never gone out of print. You could have seen it uh, on Broadway. You could have seen it or listened to it on the radio. It's been um, reanimated in different cartoons, comic books. Uh, it has been even a board game, video game, etc., etc. It's played out in theme parks. There is a great ride at Disneyland where you get into a teacup and you spin as fast as you can. Fantastic. Not now, but you could at some point. There's one scene in particular, chapter five of Carol's novel, where Alice is confronted by a talking caterpillar who is sitting on top of a mushroom. I wanna read this section for you by way of introduction to our message. The caterpillar and Alice looked at each other for some time in silence. At last, the caterpillar took the hookah out of its mouth, that is, the pipe thing that it was smoking. And you can think about it sitting on a mushroom, smoking a pipe. You might have some psychedelic idea of where these guys were at. He took the hookah out of its mouth and addressed her in a languid, sleepy voice. And you know it. Who are you? Said the caterpillar. Now, 
Lewis goes on to say, Carol goes on to say, this was not an encouraging opening for a conversation. Alice replied, re- replied rather shyly, I, I hardly know, sir. Just at present, at least, I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. What do you mean by that? said the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because I'm not myself. You see? The question the caterpillar asked, who are you, is a good one. It is a good one. It's a much deeper question than it first meets the eye. And if you spend any real time pondering this question, you realize it's not that easy to answer. The reality for each of us is that we have assumed identities from our earliest memories. Think about the question in your life, who am I? Get a picture in your mind of who you are. When you go back to being a kid, you think, well, I'm a mama's boy or I'm a daddy's girl. Uh, As kids, we dressed up pretending to be cowboys, doctors, uh, astronauts, firemen, superheroes. Some of you wanted to work in a supermarket, Uh, maybe not, veterinarians, teachers, and so forth. This includes dressing up or having parties where we pretend to be someone else, someone that we're not. You may have put your mom's high heels on, put makeup on your face. Uh, Young boys, maybe you moved a, a fake lawnmower around the front yard following your dad, pretending to be somebody else, somebody who was maybe grown up. But for us in a grown-up world, pretending to be someone else is actually a counterfeit identity. This happens with something like a fake ID, where you have your face, somebody else's face, somebody else's name, and it tells you that you're over 21, so you can get in and out of certain places, you can drink, etc. What about when you lie on a resume and you put falsehoods to help boost your chances of getting a job? One study I read about said that over 70% of candidates pad or lie on their resumes, which is crazy. That's crazy. I mean, you can think about the recent college admission scandal where Aunt Becky from Full House um, had her daughters on a rowing machine pretending they were part of a rowing team to get into USC giving hundreds of thousands of dollars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You could talk about stolen identities, which is a worldwide threat and a multi-billion dollar issue where somebody pretends they're you and spends your money somewhere else. Identity is an interesting thing to think about. But for you, have you ever lied about your age, seeking to be somebody that you're not? Have you ever told someone that your GPA or your score in a class is higher than it actually is? Have you ever exaggerated stories of your athletic career and how great of an athlete you are or were Uh, Maybe exaggerated your sexual exploits or overstated your economic status, making people think you have more money or more things than you really do. Have you ever acted one way with a certain friend group and another way with your church friends or gone on a date and showed off the person that you think they wanted to see to impress them, thus altering your true identity? What about putting on that good Christian exterior as you head to church, even though inside you're full of turmoil, anxiety, anger, bitterness, or whatever else? Here's one. Your social media platform. That thing is so carefully manicured. The the shot is just right. The, 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 The repeated 
um, pictures taken and make sure it looks just so before you post it, showing the world how amazing you are, only highlighting the great parts of your life and, and I, um, showing an identity that is not altogether true. We're so good at putting on different faces, so good at cha- changing our identity to morph uh, and blend into what we think the watching world wants or expects of us. Well, it is my opinion that right now many of you are going through somewhat of an identity crisis. That's right. I'm going to call it an identity crisis. And it's coming to the surface in a unique way right now because the things that you have used to define your life have changed in these recent days. The fixed and permanent realities that you always took for granted and built your life on have become flexible and some ways unstable. When I ask you the question, who are you? Think about what comes to mind. You might say, I'm a student. You might say, I'm a barista. You might say, I'm a gym teacher. You might say, I have a Samsung Galaxy. You might say, I'm recently married. Way to go, Garcia. Nice job. You guys got it done. You had to go to Arizona, but you got it done. Congratulations. We are excited for you. But your identity, what what about this? I'm young. I'm a vegan. I'm smart. I'm a leader. I take care of my body. I'm part of a friend group. I go to church. I'm a regular at the coffee shop. I go to the gym. I have certain hobbies. I am a student, an employee, a friend. I'm part of the serving staff. I'm part of the senior staff. Uh, Maybe it's when you think of your identity, you go beyond that to some of the intangibles, things to ground your identity in, your role or traits from your personality or the gifts and talents that you have. You might take it one step farther and turn to some different categories. Or you say, well, uh, think about your age or your gender or your ethnicity or your lifestyle, relational status, political affiliation, level of education, economic status, etc., etc., etc. With all that being said, as you sit more than likely in your bedroom alone this evening on this Friday night, many of the things that you have taken for granted, that you identify with, that you use as the core pillars of your identity are being stripped away from you. The deck has been reshuffled. The foundation has some cracks. The future is in many ways unsure. And one of the reasons that you may be having such a hard time with COVID-19 is not because you're exhibiting symptoms of fever or cough externally, but rather your symptoms point toward an internal struggle, toward a larger problem, a problem that deals with your very identity. It's very common to associate your value and even your worth and your purpose with things that were never intended to hold that place in your life. If your identity is centered around your relationship with your boyfriend and then he dumps you, where does that leave you? If your identity is focused around um, your job and the future that you have there, the promise of management, the promise of big bucks and promotion and a great future, and then you get laid off, well, now what? 
If a freak virus shuts your world down and all the aspects of your life have come to a grinding halt, everything you value has been put on hold, where does that leave you tonight? Well, I'll say it leaves you in an interesting predicament. It leaves all of us there. When these things are stripped away, we begin to realize that we put too much stock in things that can fail. The problem is that we are asking too much of these temporal things. And the simple reality is that if you have placed your identity in anything other than Jesus Christ, you will be disappointed. Because everyone and everything will fail. These things that we promote, that we assign high value to, are called idols of the heart in Ezekiel 14. They're idols in our hearts. Jesus said in Matthew 6 that you cannot serve two masters. Your your attention and, and your love will be split between the two. It doesn't work and you'll gravitate towards one. And he said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And right now we're experiencing a time where our treasure, where even those idols of our heart um, are being exposed. The, The things that you place most value in are coming up short then, and you're seeing them for what they truly are, nothing more than substitutes and shadows. One author said, if we've invested our sense of self into something small, temporal, and unstable, we will become small, temporal, and unstable people. I fear that that has taken place in some level in many of our hearts. And so with that in mind, for the next handful of weeks, we're going to work through a series that we've titled Identity. And we're going to answer one question in many different ways. Who are you? And I want you to write that question down. You may say, who am I? And it's something that we are going to work through in great detail. Tonight, I'm going to answer the question on just a broad brush, large stroke by way of introduction. And then before we finish at the very end, I'll give you um, the, the direction that we're going with the next several weeks. And I am super excited about where this series is going to take us and how it's going to challenge and encourage us in so many great ways. But tonight in our introduction, I just want to answer two questions to kind of lay out the framework for this and get us all thinking down this pathway. Uh, The first first point or the first question we're going to answer uh, in in this title of who are you is number one, and I'm just going to tell you this is not a question as a matter of fact, it's an answer. Who are you? Number one, you are a human being made in the image of God. That's it. You are a human being made in the image of God. If you want to know who you are, that's the first thing you need to recognize about yourself is that you're a human being. I know this is not rocket science and that you've been made in the image of God. But to explain this and to help again with the framework of it, we need to go back to the beginning, all the way back to the book of Genesis and look at God's creation as it sets the table for the identity of men and women. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 1. I'm waiting. Seriously. Genesis 1, go. Okay. (laughs) Genesis 1. God spoke and creation sprang into existence. 
On day one, let there be light, and there was light. On day two, God separated the dry land from the water. On day three, God made plants and all vegetation. On day four, God made the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day five, God made the fish and the birds. On day six, God made all the land animals. And in the final verses of Genesis 1, we see the pinnacle of creation, which takes place after the animals are made. And it happens in verse 26. It is the creation of man. And man is not just the most complex and highly organized animal. He's not just a step above a monkey, right? There was to be something in man that was quantitatively and qualitatively different from the rest of creation, something that would set men and women apart from the other animals. So look down at Genesis 1.26, and God is speaking, and unlike the rest of this chapter where it says, God said, let there be, and then it says, and it was so, this conversation is a little different as he is speaking to himself. And we are let in on a conversation that is taking place between the members of the Godhead. Look at this with me. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I want to draw three thoughts out of this to help with this idea that you are a human being and that you have been made in the image of God. The first, you are the result of a divine act. You are the result of a divine act. Now, I'm not talking about the physical aspect of this. Uh, you can go look at your science books from, from the uh, Mystery of Life in eighth grade, and you can figure out the plumbing later. But number one, you're the result of a divine act. This is speaking of something different. The creative act of God that made every single human being. Okay? Um, You're not the product of a natural force that's comprised of time and chance. You think about evolution. It is a humanistic and natural approach that seeks to explain the origins of life without God. The Bible also seeks to explain the origins of life, but it defines it as the direct work of a creator. The universe had a particular beginning, but it was not the result of a big bang. Um, It came as the result of divine fiat. Let there be, and and it happened. The, The spoken word of Almighty God made this world come into existence in six 24 hour days. Now, the Bible teaches that you human being, man or woman, are the direct result of the divine work of God. Psalm 100 verse 3 says that it is he who made us and not we ourselves. Psalm 138 verse 8 says that we are the work of his very hands. Isaiah 64 8 says that he is like a potter and we are the clay. In Job 31 15 it says that he fashioned us while we are still in the womb. And, and I want to ask you to turn to Psalm 139. Keep your finger in Genesis 1. We're going to come back. But in Psalm 139, this is the clearest passage in all the Bible to define that we as human beings are the unique creation of God. So turn there. And look at Psalm 139, verse 13. 
The psalmist says, for you, speaking to God, formed my inward parts. God took the kidneys and the liver, intestines, the stomach. God, you formed them and you wove me in my mother's womb. 14, I will give thanks to you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, speaking as a euphemism about the womb. Your eyes, verse 16, have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. What's the simple reality here? God made you. He is responsible for how he made you. The hue of your eyes, the color of your hair, the length of your nose, the size of um, what your feet, all of these things God made and he put inside of you. All are part of his creation. Exodus 4.11 says, The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him deaf or mute or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Friend, you're not just hurtling through the universe without purpose or without um, calling. God uniquely made you. That's cool. That's cool. So if we said first there that you're the result of a divine act, I would add to this, you were given a unique commission. Second thought here, you were given a unique commission. And you see it there in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where God issues an edict or a command, the first command in the Bible, other than the creative act, the command to Adam and Eve, that they would rule over the earth, that they would function, if you look into chapter two a little bit more, as stewards of over this world. Adam was to name the animals. They were to keep the garden. They were given dominion over the earth, Adam and Eve together, over the entire created order. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 6, it says, you, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now listen, because this is an expansion on Genesis 1. He says, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. He he says there in verse six, you have made them to rule over and you've put all these things under his feet. So man was given uh, and placed above the rest of creation to subdue, to rule the earth. As the crown of creation, he is given jurisdiction over all that God made. And he is God's appointed ruler. That's his unique commission. Third little thought here. And this is the most important. You were made as a reflection of God. You were made as a reflection of God. And this is profound. And is obviously the most critical part of these verses. And I want to try to explain this, but trying to wrap it in and fully understand it, I don't fully get it. But let me do my best in this. Because in addition to giving man a physical body, God also gave him a soul. That is to say there's something more in man than just the natural life given to other animals. In Genesis 2-7, unlike the other animals, it says God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And while we can argue whether that represents the breath of life that all animals have because everybody breathes or whatever, we cannot argue that God gave man an eternal spirit, an immortal soul. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in their hearts. 
And if you look at Ecclesiastes 3.21, it says, The breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. Man is quantitatively, qualitatively different from the rest of the animals. But there is more. Because Genesis 1.26 says that man is made in the likeness of God. He is made, the verse says, in the very image of God. And I don't want to separate those two. They're basically synonyms to emphasize the fact that we are made to be God's reflection. Let's expand this just a little bit. What does this include? The image of God being made in the likeness of God includes attributes such as moral consciousness, the ability to think and to reason, to be controlled by more than instinct that's hardwired into the genetic code. A man has been given an abstract ability to understand beauty, to to create things, to make art, to express emotion. Uh, He has the ability to communicate with language and to relate to others in meaningful and deep ways. You see, God instilled into every man and every woman a deep sense of purpose and a desire for fulfillment. But the high point of all of this is the capacity to know God, to have a relationship with God, and to worship God. A.W. Tozer said it this way, quote, The yearning to know what cannot be known, to, hump, to comprehend the incomprehensible, to touch and taste the unapproachable, arises from the image of God in the nature of man. The soul senses its origin and longs to return to its source. End quote. Said in a much simpler way, Augustine said, you have formed us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. The knowledge that God exists is placed into the heart of every man, woman, and child. Um, One of my favorite bands, U2, has a lyric in one of their songs that says, you are looking to fill that God-shaped hole. This is a ubiquitous desire. God instilled into every man and woman a deep sense of purpose and a desire to be fulfilled, a desire to know that there's something greater, something bigger out there. Romans 1.19 says that that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And if you read more of Romans 1, you understand he's talking about all human beings that God has placed within the heart and mind of a human being, the knowledge that he exists because his very nature is woven into the fabric of who we are, both physically and psychologically. But Romans 1 tells us that not all would submit to him as God. People have gone their own way and choose to reject him. And that rebellion of man is described in great detail in Genesis chapter 3. As image bearers, we were meant to submit to him and follow him as king. But instead, lifted by arrogance, we desired not to be in the image of God, listen carefully, but to be God. To have control, freedom, autonomy, independence. But God does not share. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. And so as a result of this disobedience, uh, God cursed the earth. He banished Adam and Eve from his presence. 
And instead of having open access to him in the garden in the cool of the day to walk and talk with God, his presence would now be guarded by an angel with a flaming sword to remind Adam and Eve that sinful men and sinful women cannot come into the presence of a holy God. And so in that theological, uh, uh, what theological circles call the fall, was an event in which the image of God in man was marred by sin. But sin and the fall and the absolute rejection of God even does not change the fact that man is still made in God's image. And so all have inherent value and all have inherent worth. One writer said, the value of a single human soul is a staggering thing. In the biblical economy, the value of one human soul exceeds that of the entire material universe combined. Souls are eternal. Gold and diamonds are not. It doesn't matter if you're a believer. It doesn't matter if you're an unbeliever. Man is assigned a high value by his creator. So high, in fact, that God says that murder is wrong because it takes the life of an image bearer. That's why in Genesis 9-6 it says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Now, by the way, as a footnote, this is um, one of the battle, battle lines for abortion. From conception, listen carefully, uh, from conception... A human being, um, or I should say it this way, a human life is imprinted with the image of God. And therefore, terminating a pregnancy is to extinguish, extinguish the life of that image bearer, and therefore it's wrong. Just one more verse, Jeremiah 1.5. God speaking says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So there's, there's a concept here that from the very beginning, even from that conception, that this is an image bearer. And while there's much debate in our politicized humanistic, humanistic society, there is no lack of clarity in God's perspective as laid out in his word. And so the question, who are you, is first answered on behalf of all sons and all daughters of Adam. Here it is. Who are you? You are a human being. And you are an image bearer. Got it? Everybody. You're a human being and an image bearer. Okay, that being said, let me show you the second aspect of your identity tonight. Number two, you are a sinner saved by grace. You are a sinner saved by grace. If we look closer at Genesis 3, we see that God cursed the earth. Right? His perfect creation has been stained by sin because of Adam and Eve's choice, and the results are far-reaching. A sin nature is now imprinted into the soul of every descendant of Adam. There's no escaping it. Every human being uh, who's made in the image of God is a sinner. It's ubiquitous. It's why David said in Psalm 51, In sin my mother conceived me. 
He, it's not that she was in sin when she conceived. It was, it was the fact that, that as a sinners upon sinners, you produce more sinners. At the apex of all that human beings can create and make, the greatest moment, the greatest contribution to life is when one human being and another come together and produce the greatest thing, which is what? Another sinner, right? Even at our very best. Ephesians 2.3 says that we are by nature children of wrath. There is no escape. There is no exception. Romans 3.10 says that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Looking farther in Romans 3 and verse 23, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You flip over Romans 6, and it says that the payment or the wages of sin is death. And so if we put all this together, God made this world perfect. Man cast it into sin. God cursed the earth, pain and childbearing, battle the sexes, work will be difficult and toilsome, and worst of all, every single life will end in death. In Genesis 3.19, God says to Adam, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. But right in the middle of this curse, as the sky is falling and judgment is being pronounced and God is removing Adam and Eve from his presence, right in the middle of that most tragic day, he inserts a promise. It's as if he puts a bookmark right in the middle of the curse. In theological circles, it is called a proto-evangelium. Proto means first, evangelium means good news or gospel. It is the first gospel. I heard Trevor talk about it in Radix on Tuesday night when he was teaching on the justice of God. And, and, and this proto-evangelium is the first promise of a savior in the Bible. As God is cursing Satan, he is writing a promise right in the middle of the curse that from the seed of the woman, a son would be born according to Genesis 3.15 who would conquer the devil and rise victorious. So if you're still in Genesis, look at 3.15. God is speaking to the serpent and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And here is the phrase that is so amazing. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. I want to encourage you to mark that little verse in your Bible. This is a verse to know and to hold on to. If you love Jesus Christ, then this is important to you because this is the very first reference about him in all the Bible. This man who would be born of a virgin because he has no sin nature, because he has no sinful father. It says, Satan will bruise him on the heel, a reference to his sacrificial death. And even though that would be fatal, it would not be final. For the Savior will be resurrected again to new life, conquering sin and death. And the verse ends by saying, Christ will crush his head in complete and total dominance. Now, today I was working in my garage and a couple of people played a joke on me and put a lizard under a bottle and or under a can and lifted it off and I almost freaked out because it was a big lizard. That's not fun. Seriously? Anyway. But it reminded me of a story. Um, 
from maybe five or six years ago when I was in my garage working and I looked off to the side and a snake, like probably about, now it's probably about this long, was moving its way through my garage. And I realized if I don't get this thing out of here, Tracy is going to freak out. We're going to have to move, right? And so I tried it. I tried to move towards it to get it and it beelined towards the back corner of my garage away from the door into a little corner and in right in front of me disappeared up into the drywall and was gone in the walls of my house and i now i'm freaking out what am i gonna do where's this thing gonna pop out you know you've seen movies it's gonna come out the head of the shower or who knows where and so i took a um a caulking gun and i just I just filled up that entire hole with the, the whole bottle trying to seal it off in there. It didn't last because about two weeks later, I went back into my garage and there it was again. And this time, I grabbed the shovel. I'm like, I'm not going to try to save this thing. I'm not going to try. I'm going to kill it right now. And I took the on the edge of the shovel and I came over with a huge and I swung down and just literally whoosh, and chopped its head off. And so the, its body is flailing around behind me and its head is still moving. And I took the flat end of the blade of the shovel and I stuck it down on top of its head and I stood on top of it and I literally crushed its head. That's just a little picture of what this verse in, in Genesis 3.15 is talking about. Jesus' victory would be complete. And while he would be bruised on the heel, that is his life would be taken. It would be nothing more than a bump and a bruise in, in the end because he would rise victorious and come back and he would destroy Satan and the works of the devil. And that's why in Romans 16, 20, it says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's coming, my friends. It's coming where all of this world and all that oppose God will be brought to its utter end and finish. And Jesus will reign in victory and dominance over all. And we look forward to that day. But that victory that is promised in Genesis 3 is still in our future. And in the meantime, sin has infected this entire world. Right? Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And what this teaches us is, in the situation we find ourselves in, is that as human beings, we are made in the image of God and nothing will change that. It's part of the creative act of God. It's woven into our existence. However, because of Adam's sin that's been passed down from person to person, generation to generation, we have all been marred um, by sin. And the image of God in us has been marred. Ephesians 2 says that we were actually stillborn at birth. We were dead in our sin. And it's a major issue, like I said, because a sinful man cannot enter into the presence of a holy God. Hebrews 12, 14 says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And Job, understanding the predicament that all of us are in, said in Job 9.32, for God is not a man that I may, that I am, as I am, excuse me, Job 9.32, for he is not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. Can't just say, call up God and go, I want to have a conversation about all the issues. He says, there is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon both of us. Job knew he couldn't come into the presence of God. There was an issue. 
But the promise of Genesis 3 was just a spark. And across the Old Testament, it would be fanned into flame as pictures and symbols uh, and images and shadows would whisper of the coming one who would redeem us from our sin. And this promise was completed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So listen to Romans 5.19. For as through the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many, that's us, were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice for us. He paid the price tag for our disobedience. God's wrath was poured out on him. We are spared. And so we come to him. We turn from our sin. We cry out in faith for forgiveness of sin. And he gives it to us freely and completely. And what was lost at the fall is restored in Christ. Which is why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Jesus saved you from sin's penalty and freed you from the death sentence that you were under. He has made you righteous. He has allowed you to enter into his presence and listen, listen, listen. Are you ready? Come back to this. He has given you a new identity in Christ. You are not just made in the image of God in a creative fashion like everyone else. You have been given a new identity as a new creation in Jesus Christ. You are not first a student or a mom or an American. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. That is your identity. He has freed you from the power of sin and someday will free you from its presence. And like Jesus said in John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so your identity, who you are, is found in Jesus Christ. Did you know the phrase, in Christ is used 75 times in the New Testament. What this tells us is that our closest association, that with which we identify most closely, is not our earthly family. It's not our country. It's not our occupation. It's not our hobby. Our closest association a hundred times over is that you and I belong to Jesus. You see, we have been justified. That means we've been declared right before God. That happened at the moment of salvation. We are now in the process of being sanctified. That is the process of being made holy. But if you think about that term sanctification and the process of your spiritual growth, think about this. You are being changed. What are you being changed into? To become more and more and more into the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit will not stop until Christ is formed in you. That's what's happening to each of us. It is progressively changing within us so that we are becoming more and more and more lined up to the identity of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29 says, listen to this one. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. If you are a Christian, you are right now in the process of being conformed or pressed into or shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. That's our growth in him. So the solution to the identity crisis that you're currently facing 
is not to sit at home and mope about, I don't know what I'm going to do with my future. This got taken away. That got taken away. And lose your mind. Rather, rather listen. Christ, Colossians 1.18, is to be first place in everything. Christ, Colossians 3.4, is to be your very life. Christ is to be your all, Colossians 3.11. And when Christ is first place, and when Christ is your all, and when Christ is your life, then you will understand how to deal with a bad breakup, how to deal with the loss of a job, and how to weather a crazy worldwide virus. One author said this, instead of these changes shattering your sense of identity, you will find them transforming it. I think that's really good. Through trials and disappointments and even loss, God is relieving you of your idols. He is doing surgery on your heart as he takes away the things that you may reach out to for security instead of him. He is at work to strip you down so that he can remake you and conform you into the image of his son. He started the process with your justification. He is continuing it now in your sanctification and he will complete it someday in your glorification when you stand before him complete in Christ. And so 1 John 3, 2 says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Christian, this is who you are. So let me ask you, what does this current trial reveal to you about your identity? Has it identified certain idols and brought them to the surface? Can you say Christ is at the center of your life? You know what? Those are good questions, and this is a good place to start. And I'm excited about this series as we answer the question, who are you? We're going to examine some different aspects of our identity in Christ. Currently, we've got six uh, messages lined up. They're going to help walk us through who you are in Christ. Let me give them to you really quickly. You are a child of God, and you are loved. You are a temple of God, and you are a worshiper. You are the possession of God, and you are his servant. You are a member of his body, and you are connected. You are an ambassador of God, and you are his witness. And finally, you are a citizen of heaven, and your future is secure. I can't wait to dig in. And we're going to see who we are in Christ. And it will help us to define how we are to live this life. Now, I want to speak for just a moment to those who are not Christians, whose identity is not in Christ. And I want you to know that you're going to always come up short. Uh, You're going to find that whatever you put into that God-shaped hole will never fully satisfy you. Because you were made for more and your heart yearns for something that you cannot taste and you cannot touch that eludes you that there is something greater and bigger and more magnificent out there and you know it and you're trying to fill that gap with all sorts of other things and it can only be found in Christ. It is the reason why you're empty and unfulfilled. 
And so I want to encourage you to acknowledge that you need a Savior, that you need to have your old heart removed and a new heart put in. And in order to do that, you need to cry out to Jesus Christ for salvation. Ask Him to forgive you and come to Him in faith and give up your life to Him. Surrender it. I can't go any farther, Lord. You can have all the junk, all of my sin, my past, my guilt. I just want Jesus and I want to find a new life in Him. And I want to be a new creation in Christ. And that is the prayer. And if you need help with that, we'd love to walk you through it and help you in this process of what it means to be a Christian and to have your identity fixed in Jesus Christ. Well, I close with our theme verse for this series. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and I just want to read it tonight. Can you flip over there? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is an amazing passage, one that we should memorize. It says this, But you, speaking to Christians, are a chosen race. You want to talk about identity? Here it is. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light. He's telling you who you are, and as a result of that, what we are to do. Look at verse 10. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friend, you and I are not just human beings made in the image of God in a creative fashion. We are also those who have been redeemed by grace. And now we are being made into the image of Jesus Christ. And we are a people for his possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen race, so we can proclaim and exalt the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm excited to do that. Let's pray now and wrap this up. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you take sinners who are lost and bring them back. Uh, through your son and through his work. Thank you that though we failed, Jesus did not. And while we are sinners, we have been brought back and saved by your grace. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for changing us into the image of Jesus Christ. Would you make us more and more conformed to be like him even tonight? Pray that you bless this series also. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.